and the merge, it kind of felt like an ending, but it's, it's also a beginning. I mean, now we we unleash this huge um, wall of, uh, you know, it's like a dam has burst and we've got this huge reservoir of things that have been on the back burner for so long that we, we need to get on with. So, Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome to the conversation. On the show today, I had a really good talk with Ben Edgington. Uh, ben is the product lead of the Teku client at Consensus, which is one of the uh, software versions that make the Ethereum blockchain possible. And he helped shepherd that uh, through the merge, uh, the recent very successful switch from proof of work to proof of stake that Ethereum went through in September. Uh, ben is also uh, from childhood, a self-proclaimed math nerd. Uh, he's an Arsenal fan, which we're gonna forgive him for on this Liverpool supported podcast. And he uh, also uh, got several math degrees at Cambridge where uh, interestingly, he uh, played saxophone in the Fitz swing band. So we get into all this and more and about what um, he thinks about the current state of Ethereum in the post-merge world. And we talk a lot about proof of stake and what it means going forward. So I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Here we go. Okay, so I'm gonna take a wild guess here, Ben, and say that you're English. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right, exactly. I, I wasn't born uh, in England. I was actually born in Berlin. Uh, spent the first three years of my life there, but uh, not long enough to pick up a German accent. So uh, absolutely, I'm as British as uh, as they come. Am I? I'm just guessing here. Was your family in the military? Is that why you were in Berlin? Yeah, exactly. So my father was uh, in the Royal Air Force. And uh, um, so growing up, we moved around a variety of uh, um, air bases uh, around uh, UK and Europe, which was uh, interesting, but then uh, settled in the UK. So I've lived uh, uh, lived in the UK for um, most of my life. Oh, cool. Where were some of the places you were stationed with your dad? Well, uh, yeah, initially Berlin. Wish I could remember that. And then... Um, Various bits and bits and pieces of the UK. I, honestly, I can't remember now. <laughs> it's just, yeah, one, one military base is much like another. Yeah. It's kind of a feature, uh, I think. Absolutely. Do, do you come from a big family? Do you have brothers and sisters? Uh, not a huge family, no. I have a sister who works for the uh, United Nations in Geneva. She's uh, an interpreter there. Um, and, uh, and and myself, uh, that's it um, for, for this generation. And... Uh, Got my wife Penny and uh, two daughters, um, who are now both grown up. So oh, wow, <laughs> that's uh, quite a milestone. I'm getting close to that. Yeah, my older son is in high school now, and um, just starting to get the creepy feeling of having an empty house sometimes. But it's, mm. it's quite a ways off. But uh, <laughs> not something I'm looking forward to. Yeah, seasons of life. It's uh, interesting how things evolve and change. But uh, we are where we are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what what did uh what was your childhood like were you in an idyllic kind of um you know english countryside setting that i always imagine people to grow up in yeah a little thatched cottage with timber mm -hmm. beams and roses in the garden no no mm -hmm. it wasn't like that at all so um yeah i mean my parents separated when i was 10 years old or so so i grew up with my my mother uh, she was a teacher um and uh so it was mom and my sister and myself um i was 
um, a math nerd, I suppose. <laughs> I just basically <laughs> devoted my my uh, all my spare hours to um, yeah, learning mathematics and playing with things. Got hold of a personal computer in about 1980, I guess. Got my first, uh, um, it was the sort of personal computer revolution in the UK and I guess, I guess worldwide, the 8-bit micro uh, age, which was fantastic for somebody of my sort of interest. It was just a glorious, you know, um, Z80 assembly code, all of that, just massive rabbit hole, loved it. Uh, did a lot of sort of coding in basic and assembly and uh, um, obscure languages. You could languages basically like build your both. own computer then, right? With the hardware even? Wasn't it possible yeah, back then? Yeah, in, in principle, that's right. I mean, uh, I was al always building peripherals to kind of that were hanging out the back of this thing. Um, <laughs> my electronic skills were, were limited, but uh, yeah, just had a lot of fun. And you could understand everything in those days. I mean, I had a book which was the complete ROM disassembly of the ZX Spectrum, which was the the, the microcomputer I had. Uh, this was 16 kilobytes and it had every operation, every machine code instruction in, in, in the computer and just learning the tricks that they'd used to, to put a hole in the entire operating system into 16 kilobytes was uh, uh, amazing experience and yeah. I had a huge Z80 opcode manual. It was about 800 <laughs> pages big, and I memorized the whole thing. So, yeah, that, that was pretty much my childhood. Got bullied a lot of school, as you can imagine. So. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Wasn't great. You know, uh, fuck, them, fuck them these days. Look where you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, too right. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, my dad would, uh, he, he had a compact computer that he'd bring home from work. And it was, you know, the, the keyboard fit on one end of it. And you detach it and then you could um, use it. I don't remember what the monitor was like, but uh, that was one of the first computers I remember that he could bring home. He was an engineer uh, with NASA. And I remember tooling around with that stuff and writing very simple, you know, if then mm -hmm. kind of uh, programs for like choose your own adventure kind of stuff. Um, so what was it? What, you think he just dove into math to sort of get into something that was black and white and there was always an answer? What, what, what do you think appealed uh, to you about math? I, I honestly have no idea, Matt. I mean, you know, some things just come easy, right? And um, it was uh, that school level, high school level of mathematics was, yeah, it, it was not challenging. It was just enjoyable. It was like play, uh, you know. So that's, I never particularly struggled uh, with it. I just enjoyed it, enjoyed the challenges and so forth. So um, I, reflecting on, on these things, you know, as an adult, um, you know, we, we might talk about this later, but, you know, I worked for a Japanese company for 20 years. And there comes a point in your career in a Japanese company when you're no longer a technical person, you're, you're now a manager, right? And your, yeah. your problems are not technical problems to solve, they are people problems to solve. Um, and it turns out that people problems are very complicated. <laughs> and, uh, um, you can't run experiments or, um, you know, it's, it's very hard to predict outcomes and the tools that you have are, are somewhat vague. So that was an interesting new challenge. And though, you know, I was okay at it, I never really enjoyed it. Um, that, that world, that more precise world of science and maths was much more um, suited, I think, to my, my temperament and, and computing ultimately. Um, yeah. 
I, I can definitely sympathize with that because my whole career I was a reporter and I worked for big companies like Bloomberg News and I had a very set role. Now starting Decentral as a co-founder, I have a much more of a managerial hat on and I am dealing with people and you know managing them and it is a totally different uh, mindset that you have to be in and, and, and it's difficult and challenging on, on a whole new uh, level that I never understood before. Mm. And there are a lot of times when I miss just being able, I'm going to go get the story. I'm going to write the story and file it. And then I'm going to go on to do the next thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's quite a transition. Some people thrive, some people don't. I mean, I've had the, the joy of really kind of going backwards. Um, and, you know, uh, skipping forward a couple of decades, two, three decades in the story. I mean, when I was um, at, at that company, um, I gave the managerial track a good run and ended up sort of modestly senior. And, you know, it was okay. I was you know, competent. I wasn't covering myself in glory, but it was it was fine. But I, I just felt like it was a dead end, right? I was not going to develop for, uh, for the next 10 years or 15 years until retirement. It was just going to be more of the same, more, you know, hiring plans, more budget spreadsheets, more PowerPoint presentations, more shaking hands of kind of CTOs for for the next 10, 12 years. And it just seemed like a dead end to me. Whereas um, I was able, you know, getting into blockchain things, joining consensus, I was able to sort of rewind and dive back into that more technical role. Yeah. And um, yeah, it just suits me so much better. I just, yeah, every day is just full of joy now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, uh, that's great to hear. Yeah, I love it. Um, just to keep on your childhood for one more minute, did you, mm. growing up, were you... Um, a fan of sports or did you play any sports uh, any English? Uh, I'm a huge soccer fan. So I'm curious if you have a team or if that's something that just wasn't part of your life at that point. Yeah. Well, you had to, right. I mean, at school I went to, you had to have a football team and I had no idea. I hadn't got a clue who, who was good and who wasn't, but one of my friends supported Arsenal football club. So, uh, I got myself a little Arsenal football club bag and, you know, just uh, try to keep up with the news uh, best as I, I could, but, yeah, heart wasn't in it. It was going through the motions. But um, uh, I lived briefly in London, North London, in Islington, um, when Arsenal was still based at Highbury and was able to uh, see them play at Highbury uh, a few times. And that just ignited the, the passion for me. That was just so fabulous uh, that I became at that point a very kind of committed supporter for, for a few years. Um, more recently, that sort of... Um, that ardor has has died a bit, I have to say. But, uh, well, this know, might be a good time to get back into it because Arsenal is doing really well this year and they yeah, have a good chance of winning the league. So, yeah. Um, I'm a Liverpool supporter, so I will forgive you. For I'm this. so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then, so math, it looks like it took you to Cambridge where you did, uh, you got quite a few different degrees in math from Cambridge. Um, what house were you in there? I was at Fitzwilliam College. Yeah, sorry, house. I meant college. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm getting my uh, Harry Potter mixed up with Cambridge. <laughs> Excuse me. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fair enough. It's, it was a bit like Harry Potter. Uh, Fitzwilliam wasn't so much. It, you know, it, it's not one of the more well-known or more glorious colleges. Uh, ironically, better known for its sports performance than its academic performance. But uh, yeah. that's that's where I en where I ended up. Um, I, sp I spent too long there, to be honest. I spent seven years in Cambridge. Um, and I it, I think, you know, it points to um, a character flaw. I'm perhaps too slow to sort of change things up or exit from situations which are not, you know, working for me. Uh, I had a, um, uh, I think, 
flattered myself to think I could be an academic and just kept pushing on that way, even way past the point where it was clear it, it, it was just not the right path. So I actually spent 10 years in total in universities, in academic uh, settings, but it was never going to be a career for me. So uh, yeah, yeah, I should have exited much earlier. My brother went to Cambridge, uh, got his mm. master's there. So I, I've been there. It's beautiful. The, the uh, It's just absolutely kind of that idyllic place we were talking about, um, the cam and punting on the cam. Uh, he was in Darwin, I believe, mm. uh, which goes back to <laughs> Darwin. So um, one thing I noticed, though, look, just kind of doing some research on you was um, that you uh, were in the something called the Fitz Swing Band. <laughs> That's right. Do you want to you <laughs> tell me a little bit about that? Do you play an My instrument? Your, your research is thorough, I commend you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I play saxophones of various sizes, um, and, and I still play occasionally. I, I took a sort of 20-year break, but... Uh, when my uh, when my daughter was uh, took up playing, it sort of reignited my my interest. So, uh, yeah, Fitzwing Band. I was found a member, a good friend of mine uh, founded it, and we played all the Mabels in Cambridge and Oxford. Uh, we did a tour of Europe. It, it was uh, hilarious. Yeah. Loved it. Uh, absolutely wow. loved it. It was it was just enormous fun. Yeah, that sounds great. And people would come out and swing dance and, and do the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, we, you know, the Mabels, we, we played all those. And we had uh, the uh, University Dancing Society. They were hard because they were very, um, they liked the rhythm to be very, very precise. And we were perhaps not quite as precise <laughs> as they wanted. So we had a, a difficult relationship with the dancers. But uh, yeah, we uh, were Americans such as myself. What's a, explain what's a Mabel? A Mabel, May, May, May week happens in June. It's after all the ah. exams are finished. Um, and uh, in Cambridge and Oxford, each college will hold a massive event, which will be an all-night um, party. People will dress up in uh, tuxedos, dinner suits and gowns, and it will be a um, huge and decadent uh, event with lots of entertainment. So lots of big-name bands will, will, will play, uh, as well as people like Fit Swing Band. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, so, uh, also just kind of doing a little research. I, I just this this came out of left field, but um, I I found another Benjamin Edgington who mm. was uh, I found a trade card for him in the in the Fitz um, Fitzwilliam Museum, mm. and he he was a marquee tent and rick cloth maker uh, in London. Is that is there any chance that that's related to you and your family? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, gosh, you are thorough. Um, yes, uh, I was named for him. So he is my great, 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 great grandfather, something like that. I can't remember exactly. I've got records um, somewhere on this. And uh, yeah, he um, wow, that's amazing. Founded, founded a tent making company, uh, which grew pretty significantly. And in the 1930s and 1940s was actually um, very uh, significant. Um, they made the tents that Hillary Tensing took up Everest uh, in 1952, I think it was, and the first successful assault on Everest, and uh, and so on. Um, I uh, the company was acquired, and it's sort of now the name has gone, and, and so on. But uh, yeah, it was funny when I went to scout camp as a as a 11 year old kid. Um, we stayed in a big tent, and uh, somebody pointed out that it had the Benjamin Edgington <laughs> label on it. Wow. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's your ten. <laughs> that is amazing. I, I think I, I thought I was coming out of left field on that one, but um, yeah, yeah, that's, crazy. That's, that yeah. is quite amazing. Um, so, 
you stayed in university a little too long, thought you could be an mm. academic, but it didn't suit you. Um, coming out of Cambridge, once you're ready to go into the, the working world, what, what was that like? Where, what were you looking mm. to do? And what did you think, yep. you know, what was your next step at that point? Yeah, so I had a transition period. So I sort of uh, abandoned a PhD in Cambridge, um, but got a um, post as a research assistant in uh, Reading, University of Reading. Um, in the UK, which has a very, very good meteorology and climatology department, and spent three years there. And that was really kind of seminal for me. Um, we were going through a transition in supercomputing. So these weather forecasters and climate people um, make big use of supercomputing technology. Uh, yeah. And supercomputers were transitioning from being massive vector processor machines where you have one or one or two, you know, a very small number of very, very fat processors that, that share memory and you just try and make your processor as fast as you possibly can as fat as and capable as you can that's the kind of old school vector uh, architecture uh, and we were transitioning to what became known as massively parallel processing where you'd actually have thousands of processors acting in parallel each with their own uh, separate memories communicating over a, a very very high speed network and so they had all these existing um, weather forecasting, climate forecasting models. Uh, you know, some of them were written in the 1970s and have sort of been maintained since then, and some of them were new and they were doing research. And yeah, the academics didn't know how to transition to this new architecture. So my work was um, parallelizing these, these codes and making them work on the new machine architectures, which was really interesting, challenging. Uh, introduced me to a whole load of new concepts around message passing between processors and so forth. Uh, and um, yeah, really, really learned a lot. And, you know, that sort of started the chain of events, which led to sort of blockchain stuff, I guess, uh, in, in the end. But uh, um, is, is that, that switch to parallel kind of architecture mm. that, that rings a bell with me with that, what I think Google did and why the, uh, that was their... Um, it's what they hit on to make their search engine so good and so fast. They had, I think it was hundreds or something like that of, of parallel kind of processing units. I, I, I don't know if that rings a bell with you or not, but it just kind of reminded me of that. It's, it's the, absolutely the only way to scale. Um, making fatter and fatter processes uh, just has, um, uh, just tops out at a certain point. You can put more and more transistors in, but you don't get more and more performance out. Um, and so at some point you've just got to, divide and conquer and spread spread the uh the problem out uh, across you know thousands of uh, thousands of processes and that that's yeah. the way to, to 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 scale yeah so ask jeeves was a fat protocol and then google was the parallel speedster the things that google does is incredible i mean this you know in the in the 30 odd years since i was working on this this has come a uh, on a huge uh, leaps and bounds, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So that's one thing, you know, I wrote about you back in June when we were getting set for the merge and you talked about how Ethereum really appealed to you because of the proof of stake kind of the elegance of it. And mm. I wish I had known then that you had this this history as, as a climate researcher and, and that you were studying climate change and that makes a, a huge amount of sense as to why that appealed to you. Mm. Both, I guess, from an architecture standpoint and then also from a carbon emission standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I'd been sort of ardently green, I guess, since I was about 14, 15 years old. It, it, it very much um, struck a chord with me. Um, 
I was asked when I was at college to stand as a local councillor for the Green Party, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't do in the end, and I'm quite glad I didn't. But <laughs> that was, the, you know, it was definitely on my mind. Um, and then working in the climate research field, I, you know, I had um, access to the research and, you know, could see the modelling outputs and so forth. And, you know, the whole thing makes a lot of sense. I'm scientifically, the whole thing is coherent about global warming um, and, uh, you know, the man-made influence um, in that in particular, the role of carbon dioxide, methane and and the others. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess it was years before I was exposed to the sort of climate deniers argument. It just seemed so obvious um, uh, to me that this was this was right. And uh, so it has always been part of my um, thought processes, I guess, and, yeah. and approach to things. Absolutely. And we're seeing the effects of it today. So it's not really a debate anymore. It's just mm-hmm. more people sticking their heads in the sand if they want to continue to think that nothing's happening. Um, do you find the argument against proof of work to be, I don't want to say honest, but it, it seems like the transparency in public blockchains can be used to kind of bite them on the ass in some senses. And this is, seems to be one of them because you can actually figure out the amount of computation going into a network like Ethereum mm-hmm. when it was proof of stake or proof of work in mm-hmm. Bitcoin. Um, we don't get that kind of insight into other industries. And I'm, you know, I've, I've heard people make this point and it, it seems valid to me that it's, it's not quite fair. And I wondered mm-hmm. if you had any thoughts on that. Uh, so we can get good estimates reasonably good within a factor of three or four of the carbon emissions of proof of work protocols is that, that that's the point right because we can see the hash rate and we can estimate yeah. how much of that hash rate is generated from you know renewable or dirty sources and so on so uh, whereas um, industries like air travel or you know, steel manufacture or whatever are more opaque is that is is that the point yeah yeah that's the point i'm trying to make is that the openness of a blockchain, you know, mm. le- le- leaves it open for this kind of critique, whereas we don't know, like, the steel manufacturing mm. kind of numbers. So it's not really apples to apples, but it's not a big point. I just, yeah. you know, it's it's something that I find interesting. And I think we have a fairly good handle on electricity generation worldwide and, you know, gas consumption worldwide. So, you know, th- those are good proxies. We might not be able to divide it precisely between industries, but I think in terms of the inputs and outputs at that level, um, we we have a good sense. And ultimately, we can just measure the CO two in the in the atmosphere, right? And how many parts per million are, are there? And uh, we we is pretty much all anthropogenic. So um, it's uh, you know a very uh, we 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 can have a very good sense of how much carbon is being emitted year by year. So. Given your enthusiasm for that work, how did how did you leave that to go to Hitachi, or were you doing something along those lines for Hitachi? Yeah, so that that was it. I mean, I, I realized that uh, once I decided I wasn't going to be an academic, every every further month uh, spent in academia was a month less employable in the real world. I mean, my expertise was in Fortran, <laughs> which <laughs> not a, wasn't even then wasn't really a very current coding language, right? Um, bit yeah. of a niche sport, so. I um, I realized if I was going to leave, I had a contract for a few more years, but I realized if I was going to leave, then sooner rather than later was 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 optimal uh, and um, put some feelers out. And um, Hitachi were hiring. They were local to me um, and they were hiring for supercomputer engineers. Um, so everything fitted, went for interview and it was just a super fit. Um, 
And that's and what you spend, had learned at yeah. Reading, right? By by adopting the, or by kind of figuring out these new, mm. uh, the new supercomputing models. Is that like the, the yeah, kind of stepping yeah, stone exactly. that allowed I mean, you? Yeah, Hitachi were going through this this very same transition from you know massive vector machines um, to massively parallel machines at that at that point. We had one of each um, in Cambridge, as it happens. <laughs> I got the chance to kind of you know go back there for my first three years there. I used to chair a monthly meeting um, with the computer science department in Cambridge. <laughs> you know, it felt like going home. Um, though yeah. it was a bit weird going going back wearing a suit. This was not <laughs> optional. <laughs> my former colleagues would point and laugh when I turned yeah. up in my suit and tie. But uh, <laughs> um, it, it was a very easy transition, Matt, and um, uh, I was blessed with that. Um, and worked in supercomputers for about eight years there before Hitachi pulled out for a number of reasons. Got to install the um, most powerful supercomputer in Europe in 1999 in Munich in Germany, um, which was fantastic. It was number four in the world at the time. Uh, so I got to work on that. And uh, yeah, some really good milestones uh, during that period. But then, as you mentioned earlier, I think um, over after a time, you you kind of get moved into management and you kind of mm. get less involved with the projects in a sort of hands-on capacity and it's more about managing people um and that just sort of as we as i wrote about you know back in june about like it, it was you know i think thank god for you know like that sort of <laughs> crisis because it allowed you to, to 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 leave and come into um, mm. ethereum at such a time when you know people just like you were needed yeah but uh, so let's jump into that. What, mm. as you told me before, it was the um, proof of stake really kind of drew you in. And and mm. I've, I've heard you in other interviews say, like customers, Hitachi customers were at, at a certain point, I think around 2015, 2016, mm. everyone was saying, what is this blockchain thing? We need to know about it. Please tell us. Mm. So that kind of led you, I, I believe, into kind of doing a deep dive into it. And then that's where you sort of got familiar with, with all the different um, blockchains out there. Yeah. So uh, I was working in sort of fintech um, and information security um, uh, within Hitachi. So that's uh, that was our, our little bit of the organization. Um, and uh, our customers were UK banks mostly, well, global banks, to be uh, to, to be fair. Um, and um, I'd come across Bitcoin somewhere around 2013 or 14. I sort of looked at it, I downloaded a wallet, I thought about buying some, then I thought, well, the only thing I can do with this involves Silk Road, and that seems very <laughs> dubious. And I sort of shied away from it at that point, which uh, I kind of regret now, but, um, you know, hindsight. Uh, so when 2016 came around, I, I was still pretty much clueless about what blockchain stuff was. Um, but uh, yeah, I did um, did the work, uh, read about it, looked around, uh, revisited Bitcoin, read the white paper. Um, interesting, but uh, limited, I guess, was my, my impression. Came across Ethereum. It was initially somewhat baffled. It seemed to be sort of all things to all people, you know, limitless possibilities very hard to get a handle on what it actually was um but it, you know dug down uh, eventually got there um and then read that you know the plan was to move to proof of stake move off proof of work to to proof of stake and uh, e even back then when the kind of proof of work contribution to emissions and power use was tiny i mean bitcoin and ethereum were minuscule yeah. in those days 
you know, it is obvious that if the proof of if the value of the network, if the value of the coin goes up, then the uh, amount of power you need to secure it through proof of work goes up. So, you know, if Bitcoin doubles in value, it doubles its um, power consumption. And, you know, if it 100x is in value, it 100x is its power consumption. And um, it was clear to me if these networks were going to be valuable one day, and I believe they would, then, you know, proof of work was not a sustainable technology for them to be built on. And so learning that Ethereum was going to move to proof of stake soon... (laughs) <laughs> I thought, yeah, this is really, really interesting. So that, that sort of got got me hooked. But then it was the tech, right? I mean, I started diving into the EVM and you know, decompiling contracts on, on chain and fiddling around with writing smart contracts and stuff. And it was, yeah, I was spending, I was spending all evening and all weekend just hacking around with Ethereum stuff. Um, and uh, and some of my day job time as well. I used to yeah. sneak off. I used to book phantom meetings in my diary on Friday afternoon <laughs> so I could uh, sit in a meeting room and uh, join the all core devs call and, and listen in, yeah. listen into that even even when I was still still working there. But uh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, it's it's really interesting to me how it, a lot of crypto people come in two sizes. It's like one is like somebody thinks that Bitcoin is the be all end all of everything and that anything else is kind of anathema. And then there are the people who understand Bitcoin and get it, but they think it's so limited. And that, that, well, that's why Ethereum or a smart contract based system appeals to them. Um, I don't really have a question here, but I just think that, you know, <laughs> I've, I've heard that from so many people yeah. in the Ethereum world that they just, they got the tech behind, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain, but they wanted to do more with it. And like, first and foremost was Vitalik, um, you mm. know, and driving him to, to write the white paper. Mm. Um, and yeah, you, you make a great point. I, you know, Vitalik told me in late 2017 that he thought proof of stake would be happening like later that year. So, <laughs> you know, five years later. Um, and, and maybe we could just go real quick for listeners. Um, there was some, like, you know, there, there was a lot of, uh, I don't want to say missteps, but there, there was a certain direction that, that Ethereum was going in that point when Vlad Zamfir was involved and there was the Casper kind of proof of stake and Vitalik had his own kind of, do, do, could we just go over that on a high level for folks to, to like, I think it, because one thing I wanted to talk to you about was I feel like the merge went so well and so seamlessly mm. that maybe people don't realize how much work went into it and how... Mm much cooperation and sort of like battling of ideas happened behind the scenes or not even really behind the scenes because this was like at DevCon 3 in Cancun. Mm. It was all anybody was really talking about. Um, but could you give us a little bit of a high-level background on, mm. on like some of those things that led up to the, like that, that all had to be scrapped basically in favor of the beacon chain that then went on mm. to become the merge? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of sort of prehistory before I really got involved. But uh, so about 2014, I think, was where the plan to move to proof of stake was first um, suggested. But nobody really had a good understanding of how to get there. I mean, it was an aspiration, um, but, uh, but there were big unsolved problems like long-range attacks. Um, how do you solve equivocation, which is um, the fact that you can basically mint blocks for free in in proof of stakes you so uh, you can propose 100 competing blocks at once and fragment the chain completely no nobody really knew how to solve this um vitalik proposed slasher which involved putting down a bond which we call a stake 
now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you provably misbehaved, then then you could be slashed. Your stake was taken away. So this was a big breakthrough. This this basically opened the the way to um, building um, a a workable proof of stake protocol. Solved a lot of lot of the issues for us. Um, there's a very good series of five articles which Vlad Zamfir wrote, uh, sort of retrospectives on his thinking and development of early proof of stake. And he, he never really finished it, uh, which is a shame because I'd like to see the sort of subsequent chapters. Um, but you can dig them up on uh, Medium still. And they are an excellent read, very sort of personal um, insight into the issues uh, to be solved. So yeah. so, the lot, so we were breaking new ground. So that, that's the first thing. And the second thing is, you know, Vitalik and Vlad went off in sort of separate directions. Vlad produces very elegant, very mathematically oriented, sort of beautiful, correct by construction, Casper uh, proof of stake variant, which, which is has elegant properties, but is kind of hard to implement. And I, I think we, we're still not sure we know how to implement it efficiently at the scale that we we want to operate um though it is potentially slated for sort of ethereum future maybe in a decade or something um it, it you know it is it is uh, a beautiful protocol vitalik is much more sort of pragmatic he's much more interested in actually moving things forward and getting done he's basically an engineer at heart um so he proposed a sort of halfway house to get us towards proof of stake which was casper cbc and initially, this was an overlay on top of proof of work. So we'd keep proof of work, and that would um, block production would be managed through proof of work and leadership election and so on. Um, but proof of stake would every hundred blocks or so would put a checkpoint on the proof of work chain, and say we will never revert the chain past uh, before that that checkpoint. So it would be final. We'd we'd bring this concept of fin- finality to the proof of work chain, which is, is never had. This enhances its security. So you can no longer have a 51% attack that reorgs arbitrary numbers of blocks. You can't reorg you know, a week's worth of blocks. Uh, it would be a maximum of 100 or an average of 50. Um, and so it, it does bring a tangible extra layer of security. And the idea was with that extra security, we could gradually wind down the proof of work block reward um, and you know, lower the our reliance on proof of work mining uh, through that, and it was a sort of step towards going full proof of stake at some stage. But that next step was sort of undefined. Uh, then it was, yeah. you know, we'll take this step, then we'll see what's next, <laughs> and so on. <laughs> yeah, the, so that brings us up to sort of end of twenty seventeen. There was actually a testnet for that. There was an EIP. It was well specced, uh, and so on. Um, yeah. And that's when the thinking was also that sharding, like geographically kind of splitting the network into um, parts like shards around the world was was still kind of uh, in the mix, right? Yeah, very much. Um, that had that was not nearly so well specced or explored. Um, but the idea, the idea was that these things would be managed by on-chain contracts um, because Ethereum is Turing complete. It can, in principle, you can... Yeah, it can manage its own consensus protocol within the protocol, within the smart contracts. So you'd have one smart contract managing the um, proof of stake consensus and one smart contract managing the um, sharded validators. uh, And they would both require stakes. So you'd have to put 
So stakers would have to stake either in the um, consensus one or in the sharding one. And because the capacity of the Ethereum chain was very limited, you could only have a very small number of stakers um, managing these things. So this, the, the stake size was set at 1,500 ETH, if I remember correctly, which is, I don't know, about 2 million pounds or something now. So, or oh, 2 wow. million dollars. So that's in total? total? That's how much uh, would be staked in per, total? Per validator, yeah. Oh, 1,500 per ETH per validator. Oh, wow. So yeah. um, that was to limit the number of participants to a level that the protocol could could actually manage. And that wasn't even full proof of stake. So, um, And is that what sort of led to the realization that this that this path was just not going to work and that basically the EVM, the, the um, Ethereum virtual machine had to be replaced with the beacon chain, which is what we've done. Yeah, kind of. So um, early in 2018, uh, Justin Drake came along and it, you know, it's good. I love just what I love about Ethereum is it attracts smart people with new ideas and fresh ideas. And, you know, Justin, uh, he's got his own story, but, you know, he came in and, um, very quickly identified a um, a scaling solution, which is using a new kind of signatures. We call them BLS signatures, which uh, you can aggregate. And so one of the biggest loads on a consensus protocol, a modern consensus protocol, is validating uh, digital signatures um, in a proof of stake protocol because you've got these, all these validators voting. You need to check that, that they um, signed correctly on their, uh, what they're voting on. And so with hundreds of thousands of participants as we have now, basically a beacon node spends practically all its time, 95% of its time, just validating signatures. And that's after we've optimized it. I mean, you know, as after using the BLS signatures, if we didn't have this technology, um, we would only be able to sustain a, a fra small fraction of the number of validators. So Justin came along and he proposed this, this BLS um, signature aggregation. And that, that enabled us to um, plan to have hundreds of thousands of validators, not just a few thousand. And that, that's much more Ethereum, right? We, we are, our goal is to be maximally decentralized and to have the lowest barrier to entry that we possibly can to participate as a full participant of the, of the protocol. So th this was really a game changer. This, this really shaped everything after that. So now that we knew that we could scale to hundreds of thousands, the old design that was only halfway to proof of stake and only had a few thousand participants maximum was obsolete. So we, we chucked that out in the middle of 2018 and moved, basically started with blank sheet of paper. And the, the goal at that point was keep proof work chain running with the EVM, that, that just carries on. And alongside it, we build this super highway. We build this uh, beacon chain, first step, phase zero, we called it, which is just this proof of stake beacon chain. Didn't do anything but sustain itself, but it, it proved... It was a platform for everything that followed. Then we would do data sharding on top of that, which is phase one. And then we would do execution sharding on top of that, which was phase two. And then, and it was a bit vague, then we would either migrate everybody's contracts over from Ethereum to uh, the new chain, or we would let people write new contracts on the new chain and just kind of obsolete the stuff on the old chain and have a transition or, you know, bring bring the old chain in as a shard. No, nobody really knew, but... We, we had this plan, we we're going to build this new thing that would be Ethereum 2, uh, and eventually Ethereum 1 would, would, would be turned off. Um, right. And that would be the end of proof of work. So that, that work started in 2018, and all the client teams like you know Prism were first, but then uh, uh, others like Nimbus, Lighthouse, uh, Lowstar, and Teku, which is my team, 
uh, started building the the clients to to run this system. That's what I find so encouraging about Ethereum and the community is that I don't think a corporation would have been able to kind of scrap all that work and just start yeah. with a fresh piece of paper. But this community is it's it's so big and so broad and so mm. full of smart people, like you said that uh, that I think they take pride in that. And I think that's something that's quite amazing. And um, even though I think things are kind of happening a lot slower than what people would like, mm. the the basis of what is being done is, is, is like going along in this way, which I find really encouraging and, and admirable. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's what, you know, in my old role, I would have been like, how dare you break my Gantz chart. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's uh, just, um, I, I think the question is, can we implement stuff and make progress faster than great new ideas come along? Because it, it is always the temptation is to some shiny new idea comes and you say, uh, oh, we must have that. Let's let's delay, let's delay. And there's a trade-off here. I mean, to some extent, we have to adopt ideas that that genuinely solve problems for us. But on the other hand, we, we have to be practical. We We deliver stuff. And that's one of the things that I feel characterizes the Ethereum community is that we are pragmatists. You know, we we don't we could wait until we can make the protocol quantum computer resistant, quantum proof. We could wait until we can use ZK snarks everywhere before we do anything. And you know, we could wait until we'd formally verified everything in, in the protocol. But yeah, I think we'd be just always, always, always delaying. Whereas um as practical people you know, we adopt the ideas that, that, that work, we implement them. It's messy, it's not beautiful, we've got tech debt, um, you know, there are inefficiencies, but but it works and we make progress and, and we know that there's there's a ton more progress to make. So we, we just keep building, building, building. Yeah, I mean, Vitalik was just saying the other day on Twitter that he is glad that there isn't more uh, sort of adoption by, by financial institutions yet of Web3 <laughs> and that, you know, like we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here and we should like go go more slowly to make sure that things are done correctly rather than quickly. Um, so, yeah, I, you know. I think this is something that's easy to forget is that this, this is a multi-decadal vision, right? I mean, uh, you know, the seeds of the internet were, were established in 1970s and it was... Um, yeah, you know, twenty years, fifteen to twenty years before anything very practical came out of that. I had my first email account in nineteen eighty seven, I guess. But you know, it it so but until it became world changing was two to three decades, right? And you know, we're we're on a similar path, I think. And um I love the uh, ultrasound dot money page. You know, they have a 200 year projection for the issuance of ETH. But, you know, th this is the right time scale to be, to be thinking mm -hmm. on. Um, and uh, yeah, so whilst we always want to be making progress, I don't think we need to be in a hurry. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree with you 100%. And it, it's, it still makes me laugh when you still to this day will see people who think this is all a Ponzi scheme or it's mm. a scam or that. Certainly none of this can be real, um, but, you know, and then we've got people like you who are talking like we're on a hundred year, 200 year time scale. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about, which I find really interesting is um, 
when we spoke in June, uh, I quoted you as saying that proof of stake is a proper crypto economic mechanism. Could you could you go into that a little mm. bit? Like, because I think what you're getting at here, but I won't put words in your mouth, but obviously you're, st you're, you're replacing compute power in a proof of work network with your own kind of money and, and your own collateral, right. To secure a network. Is that, and that, that should align your incentive in a, in a way, is that kind of what you're getting at with that? Yeah. Honestly speaking, Matt, I, I don't recall what I meant with, with that. But I'm happy <laughs> to sort of reflect on it. Um, and, uh, and yes, I mean, I think there are external factors in, in proof of work. I mean, proof of stake is like proof of work without the extra steps, right? I mean, proof of work, you've got to procure some hardware and you've got to build a data center and you've got to run the, run the hardware and procure electricity and things. And proof of stake achieves the desired goal, which is network security w without all those ex extra steps, which are exogenous. They're, you know, they're, they are outside the system. Now, the proof of work maximalists will say, well, that that's a virtue. I mean, you know, we it's the uh, exogenous nature of this stuff, the the fact that we have to buy power that actually gives value to mm -hmm. to this this coin. Um, I, obviously, I think this is nonsense. But uh, ultimately, what we deliver our product is network security, and and we we're able to do it without the extra steps. Um, and they're both crypto economic um, protocols, you know, at core in that. Yeah, it, you are incentivizing good behavior by rewarding good behavior um, right. in, in both systems. I, I do think that proof of stake aligns the interests of those who are delivering the security with the interests of the entire network more directly. Um, yeah, a lot of proof of work in Ethereum was was hash for hire. Um, this was, you know, people who were quite happily will mine whatever's the most profitable coin on on that day. I not mm -hmm. not everyone. Some of them are kind of you know OGs who've been around since the the earliest days, uh, and you know believed in the project and so forth. But but most of them were just hash for hire, and 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 that's fine. That's you know that's absolutely how the protocol's supposed to work. Um, you you know we you, you pay for security, but um, under proof of stake, the stakers actually literally have an investment in the underlying crypto yeah. that they are protecting. Uh, so I, it seems it's much more incentive aligned to me. Yeah, and just to hit on a point we were talking about earlier with slashing, that's where if you act in uh, against the network, you can have some of that ether taken away. And right now you have to have 32 ether um, to, to stake to become a validator. Um, do you wonder or worry about whether this is uh, getting too centralized through um, staking services like Coinbase or Lido, uh, mm. you know, there, a lot of people have made points about, well, if you add up these services, because just so people know, if you don't have 32 ETH, you can still contribute whatever you have to the, one of these services on a kind of pro rata basis, and then you'll get the rewards, you know, portioned out to whatever you were able to put in. And mm. those have um, become quite popular. And uh, I don't know what the figures are right now, but I, I'm not. I think they're at least around fifty percent of of the staking on the Ethereum network is tied up in that sort of uh, situation. Mm. Does that cause you concern? Yeah, it does. I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, uh, there are centralizing forces everywhere, and um, proof of work had its own centralizing forces. Proof of stake has different centralizing forces. 
Um, I don't think we're worse off under proof of stake. I mean, I think uh, we are no more centralized than we were under proof of work uh, in Ethereum. But there are always these tendencies to aggregate stakes and manage them mm -hmm. centrally. Um, and it's largely driven by liquid staking derivatives, which is the Lido situation, or just the ease of pushing a button on an exchange, a custodial exchange, and um, they stake on your behalf uh, and just that user experience. And even though the exchanges tend to be quite expensive, you know, they're taking a big cut just because it's so easy compared to spinning up your own validator at home. Uh, yeah. yeah, people are uh, choosing to do that. And I'd like to just interject here. You should not be leaving your crypto on an exchange in the first place. <laughs> yes, you get your own damn wallet. <laughs> so yeah, totally. There's the PSA for the day. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So, and I, I mean, guess what's yeah. what the risk here is that, uh, you know, when you bring in something like Tornado Cash and um, mm. the, the Treasury Department and saying these addresses are not, uh, you know, you can't interact with these addresses at all or this code, in fact, and then you've got a staking, you've got Coinbase who now could come under pressure from the US government to sort of um, reveal, you know, or, or maybe not allow their staking to go to those addresses, right? So that's, now you've got a pressure point where you shouldn't, like in theory, in a decentralized system, have a pressure point like this. Is that Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. And um, so I, I'm becoming more and more of a decentralization maximalist. I'm getting quite prickly about it on on twitter these days um yeah so as protocol how do you how do you do yeah. that like what is the solution in your opinion right now yeah I mean, so as protocol devs um we strive to allow the maximum decentralization so we've designed a protocol that can accommodate hundreds of thousands of validators and in which a a solo staker has a minimal disadvantage compared to a, a big pool. So under proof of work, a solo miner was at a huge disadvantage to a big pool for, for various reasons. Um, it, you know, I could not solo mine from home. It just, it wouldn't make any sense. It, it would be ruinous. Um, yeah, from you a, would a, never have, you're just the odds of you getting the block are like impossible basically, right? Yeah, yeah, for one thing and just the power costs uh, for, for another. Yeah. So, um, and you know, access to the, the uh, um, best hardware and so forth. Whereas under proof of stake, I'm happily staking from home and running it and, and there's no issues, very low overhead, very small investment. Um, and I compete on an equal footing with the, uh, large staking operators. Um, and so we've done that in protocol. So decentralization is practical and possible and, you know, it, it is happening. There are hundreds and hundreds and you know, thousands, literally, of individual stakers out there, which makes me very proud. Uh, however, as, as we mentioned before, there are centralizing forces um, which are not driven by economies of scale through the staking, but other other kind of pressures um, economic pressures, and um, yeah, you can lead a horse to water. You can lead a, lead a, a community to decentralization, but you can't, you know, force them to adopt it. Uh, I think you know, continue trying to make the protocol as uh, as robustly decentralized as, as we can, so it, as easy to stake as possible. Put you know, having appliances that people can just plug yeah, in and they just that's can't my work. Question. You mentioned um, solo staking. Do you feel mm -hmm. like that's 
easy enough for someone who doesn't have your technical skill at this point to do that on their own? Or do we need to get it more user-friendly on that end? Yeah, I, th th there are degrees, right? I mean, there um, every every few percent easier you make it, you 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 gather a, a broader and broader and broader section of the population who, who can stake. And you know, I don't necessarily think you know my mom should stake, right? I mean, uh, she at some point you want people who are able to handle problems when they occur. So the point of being a staker is that if there's a an issue with the protocol, you get a vote in how that issue is resolved. You follow one fork or another. So we saw it with the Dow fork, right? You know, right. Um, you want people who kind of have some idea of what's going on so that they can um, uh, manage, navigate the, these issues to, uh, to, at some level. But uh, on, on the other hand, you don't want the barrier to be technical complexity of using a command line or or something like that. You know, some artificial barrier, and and solutions are coming. Um, you know, o over time, people are developing nice front ends. There's DAP node that you can more or less plug and play, um, and the situation gets gets better and better uh, from that uh, point of view. And you know, we just see the negative consequences of centralization of stake and we'll we'll see it more and more so you you've already mentioned the censorship uh right i mean over half the blocks on the network are currently produced by uh third party relays that censor blocks so this this is kind of a whole story on itself this mev yeah. thing but um it, it's centralized entities have exert power like like this, I mean, they may have no choice, but to or feel they have no choice, but to censor tr certain transactions. And as a community, I think we should say this is unacceptable. And the answer is run your own node. You know, if you don't want the network to be censored, then run a node that's not censoring. I mean, that's the kind of logical conclusion. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, this is this is my my current drum that I'm beating on. <laughs> Um, when we spoke in June, you had mentioned how ready you were for the merge and to, to move on to proof of stake. Now that that's happened and it went so smoothly that it was rather boring, mm. um, <laughs> how, do you, how did you feel? Like, what was what was the sensation, you, you know, or what was the, what did you feel like after the, all of that work and then it just kind of, it just, you guys pulled it off so well? <laughs> yeah, I, I would have preferred a bit more drama, to be honest. I, it felt like, you know, a week, week after the merge, it felt like nothing. Everyone had sort of gone back to uh, bickering on Twitter after three days. And yeah. uh, it was like it never happened. And I felt honestly quite flat for a few weeks. You know, it was almost like, guys, come on, we, we just pulled off one of the great software engineering projects of history. And you know, perhaps the third biggest ever event in, in blockchain um, blockchain history. And, and uh, already it's like it never happened. Um, so I think, uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm kidding. You know, I didn't want it to be um, a disaster, but... Uh, it, it is amazing how quickly crypto Twitter moves on. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I, I'm, I, I'm with you. I think it was, I was trying to put it into perspective about other things, you know, at that scale. And I just, it's really difficult, <clears throat> excuse me, to like what you guys did in real time, you know, with absolutely no hiccups was just absolutely, it was just fantastic. It was really impressive. Um, and then I think adding to all of that, maybe feeling of flatness was, you know, Ether went down in price and like it didn't mm. seem like anybody wanted to reward the Ethereum developer community for like this amazing <laughs> thing. In fact, they were kind of punishing them, you know, 
it's like a buy the rumor, sell the news kind of situation, which, you know, from a technical, like technology standpoint is really sort of like, well, Jesus, is that, you know, is that what's driving the price? <laughs> yeah. <here? laughs> I, mean, I think macro didn't do us uh, any, any favors. And, you know, over time, we the reduced issuance, right? We've reduced issuance of Ether by a factor of eight. And in fact, yeah. the, the issuance of Ether is zero currently because nobody can uh, actually claim their rewards from the beacon chain until we do withdrawals. So effectively, issuance of Ether is, is negative because we have this burn, this EIP-1559 right. burn. So over time, uh, I think we'll see... If, Ether decouple from Bitcoin. We we're already starting to see it, I think, in the last uh, week or so. And, um, you know, that that value, you know, we're, we're patient people. What's something else in crypto that's got you excited? Like, what are you looking for? <laughs> what's, uh, you know, after all of that work and everything, is there is there a certain um, application or, you know, a, a certain part of the NFT market that you find fascinating? Or just let's leave with something like that that you're really interested mm. and intrigued by. I am fully focused on protocol stuff. Um, I, I'm slightly disappointed. I think I share Vitalik's sort of disappoint, disappointment that, you know, a lot of the stuff um, that was part of the initial version of Ethereum, the Ethereum white paper stuff about, you know, identity management on the blockchain and all, all the other sort of applications that, that were, were mooted. And, you know, a consensus five years ago, we... We had eighty to a hundred different teams, you know, small teams building different uh, um, uh, blockchain applications, just experimenting with uh, crazy new things that we could do in this decentralized world. And and this has sort of been whittled down over the years to like three three things, you know, DeFi, NFTs, and DAOs, and that's yeah. that's basically all, all we're left with at the moment, which um, seems. A pity. I think part of it is just the the capacity limitations. Uh, I think you know now we have layer two and roll ups and so forth, um, and we will again enter an era of you know, almost free transactions and you know more or less unlimited transactions. I'm hoping that will unleash this sort of slew of new and creative applications again, and that we'll sort of go back to that. Uh, uh, that era four or five years ago, that excitement of just experimentation with, with different things mm-hmm. yeah. um, uh, on that. But uh, so that, that, that's at the application level, uh, the protocol level, uh, the merge, it kind of felt like an ending, but it's, it's also a beginning. I mean, now we we unleash this huge um, wall of, uh, you know, it's like a dam has burst and we've got this huge reservoir of things that have been on the back burner for so long that we we need to get on with. So yeah, data sharding is coming in EIP four eight four four. We're looking at single slot finality. That's a bit far out. Statelessness. Yeah, just um, a massive um, uh, engineering lift over the next four to five years to um, make Ethereum you know, fit to be the you know, the the settlement layer for the Internet of Value, as Justin yeah. Drake likes to put it. You know the the financial infrastructure for the planet uh, that's accessible to everybody, permissionless, decentralized, uncapturable, um, and uh, all of these good things. Yeah, that's an excellent way to leave it. Um, ben, let everybody know where they can find you if they'd like to find you. Uh, yeah, Twitter's probably the easiest place. So I am at Benjaminian underscore XYZ, XYZ, if you like. Benjaminian. Um, yeah, blame my kids. 
Uh, yeah, you, you'll be able to track me down uh, without difficulty. Great. Uh, thank you so much for the time and all the insight. It's been really fascinating talking to you. Um, I hope you uh, get off with me and go play some saxophone. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. That's a great idea. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, take care. Been a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Decent People. We are produced by Matt Solon. Music is courtesy of Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. Take care. <laughs>